Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today we're speaking with Drs. Jeremy Lewis and Paul Salam, covering their recent viewpoint in JOSPT entitled, It is Time to Put Special Tests for Rotator Cuff-Related Shoulder Pain Out to Pasture. We also cover the importance of patient education, load progression, as well as how moving away from a structure-specific model can help the field of physical therapy continue to move forward. My name is Dan Chapman, and I'm a physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. So Dr. Paul Salam is an assistant professor at the University of Indianapolis. His areas of research are in sports medicine and the shoulder, more specifically overhead athletes and currently frozen shoulder. Dr. Jeremy Lewis is a consultant physiotherapist and professor of musculoskeletal research at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. Jeremy has been awarded a fellowship of the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy. He teaches his shoulder postgraduate workshop internationally and has presented keynote lectures at many international conferences. His main area of research interests are rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, frozen shoulder, injection, and exercise therapy. Thank you both so much for coming in and talking with Chelsea and I. I'm very, very excited. Thanks for having us. I mean, this is a, a special opportunity, and I think it's great that JOSBT is putting these sort of things together. Great to be able to have value-added content to a, a paper. So thank you for the opportunity and great, great innovation. Can you talk about what fits underneath that umbrella of rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, and, and how do you categorize your patients into those who fit under that umbrella and, and those who don't? The idea was maybe to take away some of the structural diagnoses such as impingement syndrome or tendonitis because we're still not 100% understanding of if it's inflammation. And if I was a patient I told I had, was told I had tendonitis, I'd be wanting an injection or some, some steroid medications. Or if I was told I had a tear, I would probably be thinking the best thing for me was to have surgery. So the term is an umbrella term, trying to move away from a definitive structural diagnosis. You know, I try and categorize the patient into a Venn diagram of, is this not a shoulder? Does it overlap with an unstable shoulder, a stiff shoulder, or or a, a painful and weak shoulder, which is what we're talking about. And around that is the kinetic chain and psychosocial factors and lifestyle. Rotator cuff related shoulder pain sits within the subset of painful and weak shoulders. Now, a lot of people are saying we don't need to go beyond that. I disagree because there are so many painful and weak shoulders. There's, you know, you might say the first stage of a frozen shoulder sits within the painful and weak shoulder, but it moves to the stiff shoulder. Someone with osteomyelitis of the, of the lateral end of the clavicle. This condition is a hypothesis. You can't say definitively you've got a rotator cuff problem. And the term is trying to say it's the muscle, the tendon, the bursa, the bone interface, the very complicated pain neuroscience, understanding that you can have pain that's not localised pain to the shoulder. It encapsulates all those things. It's typically based upon a history of changing load, which may not be the case in a onset of a frozen shoulder. So that may help a clinician clinically reason, well, there's no change in load, maybe it's moving into calcification or frozen shoulder. But there typically is a change in load or a change in lifestyle. Are you calling on all orthopedic special tests to to be eliminated or is it just for rotator cuff related shoulder pain? Yeah, I think that's a, a good clarifying point. You know, we intentionally focused on 
the special test for rotator cuff related shoulder pain. And I think some folks maybe are taking that to broader categories throughout the examination. It's really designed to kind of put the spotlight on those special tests for rotator cuff related shoulder pain and what they're not able to do that maybe we once thought they could do with the evidence that was available at that time. But now with the evidence that we have available now, it certainly looks a lot different. However, they're being used in the same fashion. What is the importance or is there an importance for identifying specific structures for people with rotator cuff related shoulder pain? Yeah. And and I think that's where we argue in this viewpoint that there really isn't much place for that because what we're finding is that we, we really can't identify those structures as the source of the individual's pain. And so how they experience pain and what might be driving that pain is more than just a particular structure. And we, if you look at um, Borelli et al., where they did 123 consecutive MRIs um, when individuals with unilateral shoulder pain, they found that there really wasn't any significant difference between abnormalities, you know, putting that in air quotes there, abnormalities from one shoulder to the other, but yet the other side doesn't have any pain. We see that over and over again. It's in baseball pitchers and general population under imaging, but really they're probably just normal age-related senescent changes that happen in the shoulder. And we're just now trying to sort of sort through that. So I think that in and of itself kind of tells us that you know, it, it might be foolish for us to think that we can, one, identifying and two, then being able to treat that specific structure with some success. And I just don't think that the special tests are able to do what they've been touted to do based on the current evidence. It would be brilliant to know it's this structure and this is the reason the patient is experiencing pain. And, you know, when I, when I went through physio, physical therapy school in Australia 110 years ago, we learned these special tests to identify, is it the supraspinatus? Is it the labrum? They were all nociceptive tests without an understanding that you can experience pain without nociception. You know, many patients, the reason for their pain is, is, is hunted by physical therapists, by surgeons. And even though it's really desirable to know where the symptoms are coming from, because maybe we can tailor a good treatment for that individual, but we've got studies today that compare people with who've had labral repairs with biceps, tenonotomies, with sham skin incisions, and they all have the same post-operative intervention and they have the same outcomes at two months. All the studies that have compared arthroscopic observation of the shoulder with uh, subacromial decompressions have shown no difference in outcome. Studies that have looked at open and closed surgery for full thickness rotator cuff tears are showing that outcome really isn't dependent with the success of the surgery. And so We've got to move away from a structural diagnosis. For sure, the structure and the biomechanics are really important, but it's maybe not the be-all and end-all that we thought it was. And the whole purpose of the special tests, as, you know, as, as, as we wrote, was to identify the structure, which just ain't possible. 
you know, what, what I noticed while reading the viewpoint is that it seems to really mirror our evolution with low back pain, where we, we move, we've moved away from a structure-specific diagnosis and, and started to look at treatment-based classifications based on certain presentations. Uh, for example, you know, stiffness and lack of range of motion, someone who needs a strengthening and stabilization program versus someone uh, falling into something along the lines of directional preference. And so the focus is more on patient goals and improving function while decreasing pain instead of a structure-specific diagnosis and then a paired treatment program to go along with that, that structural diagnosis. And, and probably a really good point. And probably, um, you know, the shoulder, the knee is 20 years behind low back pain research. But, you know, really, why would we expect there's a difference? You know, we know that performing surgery on, on degenerative medial meniscus, menisci, compared to sham surgery doesn't produce a difference outcome. So we're just 20 years, 30 years behind. I think that the time is right to begin to, with the evidence that we have and, and have had now for several years or, or even longer than that in some cases, to really point towards let's move forward with how we're looking at the shoulder and the experience of pain for those individuals too. I think something that I took away from the viewpoint is that we're probably unnecessarily overcomplicating things. So if there are these presentations that we are going to be treating similarly, we can simplify some of what we're doing to make diagnosing and treating this painful shoulder more straightforward as well as less scary for the patient. That's such a great way to try and summarize what we were trying to do in the viewpoint. And I actually think this is a an absolutely fantastic time for physical therapy or physiotherapy for exactly the reasons you've just described. I think that we've for a long time tried to follow in the footsteps of other professions that have that are based upon making a structural diagnosis and performing an intervention for that structure. Just, you know, we had the first x-rays in 1895 and then MRI CTs in the 1970s, an explosion of uh, ultrasound from the 1990s, always with a belief that we could identify the structure. And exactly as Paulie was saying right at the beginning, that that experiment in non-traumatic presentations hasn't worked. We're the first humans to see inside the body of people who are alive. But what we often are seeing is not the reason for the symptoms. If we can mature as a profession and say we're just not able to do that yet, I think if we say, okay, what's your functional problem and try and reduce the disability, maybe not completely reducing the pain because we've got to reframe what pain really is, but get that person to live their best life. So it seems to apply only to non-traumatic injuries. How does your viewpoint change when it comes to acute or traumatic injuries? It's, it's I think it's some, in some ways age dependent. Is this a young person who's had a, a traumatic dislocation on a, a football field, which is not the condition we're talking about in this viewpoint? You know, the, the condition is typically for uh, people slightly older not always, and, and it may be that they've already got pre-existing pathology. And it's just exactly as Paulie was saying, you know, the studies that have identified people without symptoms have the same, more or less, same pathology as people with symptoms, structural pathology. So we're looking at wrinkles on the inside of the body. We're looking at grey hair on the inside of the body, which doesn't hurt until you see it. That kind of sums up the article. Is there anything big that you guys wanted to hit from, your, from the viewpoint that you really wanted to, to get out there? 
for the people who haven't read or just looking at the abstract, they're going to miss that big box, that table basically is, is outlined the shoulder exam as, as we might hope it to look like centered on the patient and all those elements that we propose without the use of the special tests. I don't want that to be lost on people who, who are looking at the viewpoint and seeing that all we're trying to do is remove special tests from the examination that they've been performing for 20 or 30 years and have been successful with. So what would an evaluation look like without the special test? It usually starts with uh, the history and the interview and, and talking with the patient. And, and if I'm honest, that's the majority of the time I spend with folks in clinic is with that. and really helps me get to know the patient, establish the relationship, learn what's important to them. There's got to be some element of a, of a triage section too, right? And so one of the first things I want to do before we cross that street and head down that street of the shoulder is look both ways. So we, we look one way and we're going to look for sinister pathologies. Is this truly something musculoskeletal or could it be something else, right? So we need to at least kind of figure that out. And then we're going to look down the other street and we're going to see, are there competing joints that may be at play here? The cervical spine is the biggest one to masquerade along with shoulder pain. And so, you know, and oftentimes they're going to be working in chorus together. Once we look both ways uh, and, and feel safe crossing that street over to the shoulder, then that's where the real work begins, right? Early on, I wanted to drive that train, right? I had my eval that I wanted to go through and I wanted to check all the boxes and I wanted to do everything I wanted to do because I felt like that was the best thing I could do for my patient is go through and figure out what structure is causing their pain and then develop a treatment approach for that. But what I've come to learn is that if I just sit, shut my mouth and listen, they're going to tell me what I need to do. And it's going to work much better for both of us. Paul's comment that, you know, he listens more. And that's certainly evident by the research. The more expert a clinician you are, I don't know what that means, expert, but the more experience you have, you tend to talk to patients more and physically examine less. And the more novice you are, you tend to talk less and examine more. I was going to say, so it doesn't matter if, there's, if it's a cluster or anything. It just, it's just not that important. We're just putting way too much weight on them. That's like putting perfume on a pig, right? And then expecting to put a different kind of perfume on a pig and just you put four different kinds of perfumes on a pig, it's still going to smell like a pig. What I'm gathering from this is that, you know, a cluster in this case won't help us because the, the validity of these tests, what you're saying is that their ability to tell us what structure is actually causing our patient's pain is based off of using MRI as our gold standard, which, as you've pointed out so well, has inherent flaws in its ability to identify symptomatic abnormalities just, you know, from just normal asymptomatic age-related changes. So, since the foundation has these inherent issues, putting more of them together isn't really helpful actually in identifying the structure at play here. But, but also, the other thing that just to, to add, which is a really good point you were saying before, that, that the, the tests can't identify structures. They were designed to, that, but they can't. They're, they're symptom provocation tests. So if the patient, if the individuals come in and says, it hurts me when, and then they do the push-up or wash their hair or tuck their shirt in, that's, that's the test. The value of the test is if the patient says, maybe I, I get my symptoms two hours into playing tennis and they aren't able to show you something that reproduces their symptoms, you could use those tests as a symptom provocation test or you can make up your own tests such as doing repetitions to, to 
uh, to fatigue of one side versus the other or doing something that's provocative of symptoms or asking them to come in after immediately after a, a, a tennis match. So, so then you could maybe then have a look at the symptoms. But, but more beyond pain provocation or symptom provocation, I think that's where we've got to draw the line. But then what if someone is bad at their history, identifying or categorizing their, characterizing their pain, and it hurts to wash their hair, but that could be labrum or rotator cuff related. Is there value there to be able to differentiate between rotator cuff related shoulder pain and specifically the labrum? Because some clinicians would argue that you could approach those two things differently. If previously you were using the results of that special test to direct a treatment towards a particular structure then yes, it, it, it can't help but change because you're not treating a structure. You're not treating a torn labrum. You're not treating a torn rotator cuff. You're treating what the patient values and brings to the table. Now, can you imagine the harm we're doing when someone turns up with a bit of shoulder pain and we're telling them, oh, you, you've got a forward head posture. You must be related to Quasimodo. This is the biggest trigger point I've ever palpated in my life. It's going to take me months to deactivate it. And oh my gosh, it looks like you've got a, a supraspinatus tear. Let's confirm that with a, an ultrasound scan. You know, the harm that we're doing by these structural problems that we identify for people that just aren't supported very much by, by research evidence. And I think we have, we're having this conversation during a time when the world has been disrupted in a way it's never been disrupted before. And at the end of all this, our health systems are going to be really suffering. And a contribution from our profession must be how do we offer sustainable, honest health care? We've got to get into our heads as physical therapists. We are not offering second best treatment. We're offering the best treatment. And so it's really important, in my opinion, that somehow we have joined up conversations with the surgeons, that we all use the same language. You know, it's not appropriate for a surgeon to say with this condition, I've done a special test, you've got a scan, you've done a scan, you've got a tear, you can try physical therapy, but you're going to need surgery because no one's going to engage. But if the doctor says, we used to think surgery was important, but now we know we've got research evidence that says, go to the physio, go work really hard for 12 weeks. If that physical therapist only puts you on a table and only gives you modalities and only does pressure points and whatever... Fine, we need to find a different person for you. You've got to exercise. You're going to get the same results as if you had surgery and exercise. And of course, if you're not satisfied, come back and see me. And so that's the advantage of this reframing. It is taking away the structural diagnosis. It's saying, yeah, you've got this terrible shoulder pain. It seems to be this condition. You get really good results in physical therapy. Some people are like, well, you know, why all the fuss about special tests? It's more than that. It's what the results of these special tests can potentially lead to, right? And it starts with what you're doing to the patient when you tell them your rotator cuff's torn and that's where your symptoms are coming from. And I can't tell you the number of times I had conversations before even getting to the treatment room with a patient and their thoughts were, you know, I had an MRI. The orthopedic surgeon said my rotator cuff is torn. What is physical therapy going to do to help me? And my goodness, if, if I'm not any further behind the eight ball there, I don't know where I would be, right? I've got my work cut out for me. And that's where that, that dialogue with the patient then becomes even more important, right? Because now we have to, to educate them in a different way, maybe. That's where that conversation is, is so important. So if you're 
um, proposing changing the way we give education. Can you give an example of what you want that to look like? So one of my questions to my patients somewhere along the line, if I don't get it out of them voluntarily, is, so what do you think is going on with your shoulder? And I'll let them tell me what their thoughts are about what's going on with their shoulder. And then, that's, then, then I know what they're thinking, right? So if they tell me, you know, my rotator cuff's torn and that's the source of my pain and how, how are you going to fix that? Then my education there looks different than someone says, well, you know, I really don't know. I, I, I went in, saw the orthopedic surgeon and he said, you know, he thought physical therapy could help and my shoulder hurts. And so that's why I'm here to see you. And so your education is going to be within the context of what the patient brings to the table. And that's where that shared decision-making model is really important. I think that's a great time to educate the patient and talk about potential harms and benefits of all the different treatment options. And then they have the choice. But I think we, it's really important that we do three things with education. I think it's important you ask the individual, what was the most important message you took from that? So that, you know, you listen to what they took from it. You also ask, you know, what, give them permission to ask further questions. You know, was there anything you didn't understand, anything you'd like to clarify more? But also a question that I learned to ask from, from Kieran O'Sullivan, um, a professor of physio physiotherapy based in, in Ireland, is who are you going to tell this information to at home so that you've got an understanding of does a person have a social support around them? Who is that social support? And what are you going to tell them? And if, if they sort of relate back what it is that you wanted, you're trying to impart, you've done a great job. And if not, you maybe have to think of plan B. So you mentioned in the viewpoint that it's crucial to provide a graduated rehabilitation program for these patients, but sometimes dialing in where to start can be challenging. So, you know, you don't want to provide too little or too much stimulus. So, so how do you go about finding that appropriate point of entry for these patients? For those people who value manual therapy, whether it's the patient or the clinician, there is certainly a place for manual therapy, but absolutely not a lot of it and not by itself, a very short amount at the beginning. And certainly it's something that needs to be reframed like the special test. We can no longer tell patients we're deactivating trigger points, we're decreasing stiffness in joints. It's a, it's a therapeutic touch technique that is that for some people it has some benefit. And if a patient says I really need it, this hands-on, hands-off debate is driving me crazy because the patient comes in and says, you know, I had... Uh, manual therapy from a colleague last year and it really helped me how arrogant would it be for us to say oh that's so 2019 we don't do that anymore you know so you know it's not the patient's fault that they have this expectation it's because we've provided it so you know you could say to the patient well that's wonderful that you know something that will help you but this is the second third time you've been in are you comfortable talking about other management options as well so for me, I'd go through a three-stage, uh, tell the patients about a 12-week program. I would draw for them on a piece of paper that it's not a linear, straight-line decline. It's going to be a bit up and a bit down. Increasing pain is not present, pleasant, but it doesn't mean you've got harm. As I said, the only harm you can do is not exercising. We've just got to adjust the treatment, the management, to find a level of exercise that you can cope with. So I would typically start with a very short program of just trying to get the patient to move with less symptoms so that they can have some confidence in their shoulder. I then typically would go into a, a short period of time of heavy, slow resistance exercises because there is some evidence that, that you can get 
good loading. It doesn't usually cause pain. And in the patella tendon, it's shown that it can change structure a little bit. But there's also some evidence for um, strengthening as a pro as a as an approach. But then I would go into that's that's uh, slice one and slice two of a hundred slice program. And slice three to a hundred is a graduated pushing, throwing, pulling program. So every patient we see, whether they're 10 or 110, are going to have to lift something and they need their kinetic chain for that. So I will take them through a graduated lifting, carrying program that sometimes you have to adapt because they're saying it's increasing my pain. I, I typically wouldn't do the same exercises every day. Some of our research would suggest there's some reasons for that. They would be exercising every day, whether it's lower limb, kinetic chain, closed chain, whatever it is, I'd be doing a pushing, pulling, throwing program because every person's going to have to throw, whether it's throwing a Frisbee to a grandchild or a javelin at the Olympic Games, if it ever happens. But, but you know, so, so everyone's going to need a level of function. And then I want to introduce chaotic exercises because, you know, when you're doing exercises, I use this analogy a lot, when you tuck your arm into your side and you're doing external rotation exercises, it's not really function. It's good function if you've got a deodorant problem, if you haven't got perfume to give to the patient, you know, you don't want to lift your arms to the side, but it does nothing for someone who has to hammer nails into walls or, or paint ceilings. It's not enough rehabilitation for them. So we've got to make sure we exceed the patient expectations, do very chaotic movements because that's how the shoulder functions. Our aim is to get people back to valued activities and valued valued level of function for them. If we were to boil down this entire interview and your entire viewpoint and all of your amazing expertise and research that you just summed up for us into something even smaller, number one, when we do our evaluation, we're just so much more focusing on the subjective part of the actual evaluation. We are really listening to them to find out what's important to them. We are obviously clearing red flags and cervical spine, but even our evaluation, the objective part is still functional. We're looking at how they're moving and what they're doing and what's giving them pain. We are not doing tests because they're overvalued and what they actually find doesn't actually mean what it's supposed to mean. And then we're going to go treat them. We're going to take into consideration physiologic healing and loading, but the actual diagnosis does not dictate treatment. It's what their function is that dictates treatment. And that treatment is going to be what is specific for that patient. I'd add to that, we've got to exceed our patient's expectations. We've got to take them to a place where they look back and say, I can't believe what I'm doing. Thank you so much for such a delightful chat. Just incredibly lucky to have you guys and all of your expertise. Where can our friends find you on social media? I'm at, at Pauli Salam. So am I. <laughs> That's where you should find me. It was great, great opportunity to, to talk. You guys take care. Thank you again to Drs. Jeremy Lewis and Paul Salam for coming to chat with us at JOSPT. We'd also like to thank Dr. Jeff Miller from the University of Delaware for his contributions to this episode, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT. 
and Facebook. We're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Thank you.